everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're not new here, I greatly appreciate you gracing me again with your presence. So this is actually the second time I'm recording this because my computer decided to have a meltdown and I'm really not sure which one I'm going to use because I already sent out the other one. I really have no idea what's going on. But I was telling the story yesterday, the first time I recorded this, and I was telling the story while it was happening because it literally happened yesterday. But some fun anecdotal stories about my life right now, and everybody says my life is so chaotic and they're probably right. My car got stolen yesterday, which like, you know, it is what it is. I live in New York. Sometimes things happen. You know, your car gets stolen. It, it happens to a lot of people. You know, most people in the world have some kind of history of some thing of theirs being stolen. Totally cool. I have insurance for a reason. I will be okay, you know? But what I'm not okay with is the absolute assault that these dudes are taking out on my personal credit. They found a bunch of credit cards in the car, and they're trying to use it all over Staten Island right now. Which is just ridiculous. Like, you know, take the car, whatever, I'll get it replaced, it's no big deal. But to try to go after me? Like, they threw my driver's license out the car a few blocks over, and they used my car to go steal other cars. I have it all on CCTV from all over my neighborhood, because, like, I'm on a town page, so people on the town page are like, Oh my god, your car got stolen, here's my ring camera footage! And you can see them going around in my car stealing other cars. So, as I said, things happen, my car got stolen, it sucks, it's a process, but... I can do it, but them going and trying to use all my credit cards at like Targets, gas stations, everything like that, that's pissing me off. So now I'm going through the great, great process of trying to lock all my credit down and figure that out because my army paperwork was in there, my DD-214 was in there, so like my social was in that car, everything of mine is in that car, they can open credit cards, they can do everything, like thank god the cards that they tried to use yesterday morning before I realized that the car was gone, those were old cards, so they got declined and they tried to hit for Target for like $217, so thankfully that got declined. The gas station charge that they tried to hit me for also got declined, but now I keep getting things that I'm, you know, Citibank that I've never had a credit card and it's like, okay, yeah, they have my DD-214, they have my social security number, and they're attempting to go out and open new credit cards, which is just great. I love it. I'm so happy to be going through this process. I love being back in New York, guys. It's awesome. But as far as tonight's episode, we're coming to you with a request, which I absolutely love. Somebody commented that they wanted to see me look into something. This episode came from Vince Plants. He suggested that I look into some Canadian gangsters, and honestly, I knew about the Mafia in America, I knew about the Mafia in Italy, but I really never even gave Canada a second thought. Then, while I was researching Carmine Galanti in my last video, he was sent to Canada, so it just piqued my interest, and I remembered that comment, so I was like, you know what, I think I'm gonna go ahead and do that. So I went, and now we're doing a Canadian mobster tonight. So let's go learn about some Italian Mafia in other countries, shall we? P.I. 
yes, this is so unfair because, like, as much as Canadians talk shit about us, I really don't even feel like Canada is another country. I feel like they're, like, our older, cooler, like, nicer and more popular sibling that just, like, lived their whole lives with their dad, you know? Like, I live in New York, and Canada is connected to New York. You can get to Canada from New York, like, way, way, way up north, New York. So... It's always been some a place that's really, really close to me. I haven't really thought of it as like a different country. I've never been there because I don't have a passport. So I've never left this country, which is just the saddest thing in the whole world. But I've never been to Canada. But if I met somebody that was from Canada, it would be like meeting someone that's from like Ohio. You know, it's not like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. You're from another country. It feels like North USA to me. So as much as I'm talking in this episode about how it's a different country, yada, 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 it does feel very home-like to me. Oh, and PPS, I have been learning to speak Italian on Duolingo. I think I've talked about it on this channel a few times, but there's only so much that you can learn from an app. Like, it's super useful. Don't get me wrong. I love Duolingo. Not sponsored, but I love Duolingo. But you can't really learn how to have a conversation on there. Like, I can't just go up to somebody and start speaking Italian to them right now. Which is where you guys come in. If anybody out there speaks both Italian and English and wants a new pen pal and wants to, like, assist, definitely drop a comment and let me know and let me know how I can get in touch with you because I really want to have conversation and talk to somebody that is a speaker of Italian. I would love that. So if you're somebody that speaks Italian and you want to take on a new project, I'm here for the learning and let me know. So as for Nicolo Rizzuto, he was born on February 18th, 1924 in Catolica Ercole, an agrarian community of around 6,000 people, and it's surrounded by high, chalky mountains in the Sicilian province of Agrigento. The region is mainly known for its vineyards and its beautiful olive, almond, and pistachio groves. And I looked at pictures and, you know, scrolled around the map on Google Maps, and this place is to die for. It is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. That is my number one dream, is to go to Italy. I've always, always wanted to go. I have immigration papers from my grandmother coming to America from Sicily. So going to Italy and seeing the place that my family lived for my whole life, I dream of it. It's my biggest dream. So when I see places like this, this Catalica Ercole, it's absolutely breathtaking and just gorgeous. His parents, Vito Rizzuto Sr. and Maria Renda, met when Maria was actually a widow. Maria was a widow to the late Francesco Miliotto when she met Vito. Miliotto had been killed when he was attempting to rob a farmer in San Giorgio, a rural area in the commune of Catalica Ercole, so he was a criminal. Maria brought one son into this relationship, and his name was Laborio Miliotto, and she obviously had this son with her late husband. Maria's brother, Caligero Renda, was a straight-up G. Like, he was a mafia boss in Sicily, which is just a whole new level of mafia boss. You think any one of the dudes in America... Okay, let me put it this way. You could take a street soldier in Italy and put him up against a mafia boss in America and the the lowest down 
Italian gangster is gonna win out. Every time. It's in their breeding. They're taught how to operate within the mafia from such a young age. Like, from the moment they're born, they're taught how to be in the mafia. They're taught how to take orders. They're taught how to obey. They're taught how to show respect. And they're also taught how to be violent and do whatever you have to do to achieve the mission and show respect to your superiors. I saw this quote somewhere, and I went looking for it, and I couldn't find it again. So if you guys know where I heard this, let me know. But it was from another prisoner, or like another mafioso, and they were saying that with the zips, they would put their head into a bucket of acid if you told them to. Not because they're hungry, but because they're disciplined. And discipline is just not something that we're known for here in the States. It's just not. Or in Canada, let's face it. I mean, discipline... Progressive? Yes. Liberal? Yes. Disciplined? No. That's not what we're known for. So these dudes are a different breed. Completely different. So when you hear that somebody was not only in the Mafia in Italy, but also that they were a Mafia boss in Italy, like, it means a hell of a lot. Vito Sr. and Maria had one son together, Niccolo. Which is pretty weird. Usually when I'm on here, these guys have six or seven brothers and sisters. The fact that he's an only child, well, he's not an only child, he has a stepbrother, but he's an only child to his mom and dad. It's a little weird, but it's it's good. So Vito went with Maria's brother, Caligaro, and they went together to America to start a new life. On August 12th, 1933, Vito's body was found shot to death in a query in Patterson, New York. He had gotten into an altercation where he set fire to a building and somebody decided that killing him and leaving him in a quarry was an acceptable punishment. Caligaro walked away from this perfectly fine. And you know that whatever he did, if he lit a building on fire or whatever he did, Caligaro was involved. But Caligaro came back to Sicily and didn't skip a beat. It was like nothing had happened. Caligaro started working for Baron Francesco Agnello. Now, this is one thing that I really don't like. If you read about Niccolo, you're going to read that he married into the Mafia. And honestly, it's just not true. This boy was born into this life. He was raised on it. He was taught these customs and traditions, how to scheme, how to be a criminal. He was taught all of this from a very, very young age. There was no other choice. He was going in the Mafia. After he lost his father at nine years old, there's pretty much no other path. He set on the path that his family before him and generations of family before that had trekked. He became known around town as a malandrino. In Italian, this word is closer to the word like crook and criminal than mafioso. So mafioso is sort of like a man of honor. You think of a mafioso and... In Italy, they're considered onerous and upstanding criminals, but a malandrino, they're known as, like, pretty much in American, I, the only comparisons I can come up with is, like, a scumbag, you know, a dirtbag, a sleazeball. It's, it's a crook, it's a villain, like, a bad guy. Nicola was arrested for the first time in 1945 at 21 years old on a crime that his mother and her father before that were also arrested for at the same period of time, selling illegal wheat on the black market. 
Remember that this is in Italy during wartime. Even though the country is under fascist regime, they did live under communist-like laws during the war. The government was the only ones that were allowed to sell wheat. They claimed that it was to make sure that distribution was fair, but in reality, it wasn't fair at all. What ended up happening is that nobody in the actual population ever had any wheat, and it became a very hot commodity. Every Sicilian resorted to criminal, illegal trading to feed their families. The black market was the only place that this existed. And you see this happen through history a bunch of times. You see it happen in America in Prohibition. This is exactly when there's a commodity that human beings feel is a necessity. And now I personally, I don't drink. I don't view alcohol as a necessity, but there is people that view it as a necessity. And when you have a commodity and you tell people that they can't have it and they view it as a life-sustaining commodity, a black market will always pop up to provide this commodity that you're telling people they can't have. To rub salt in the wounds, not only was wheat absolutely impossible to come by in markets, but every single Italian was required to grow wheat and produce a certain amount of it to the government every single month as a tax. What wheat was available in the market was only available to rich landowners. The average Sicilian citizen earned about $1.75 a week, and a loaf of bread cost about 50 cents. So that ended up making one loaf of bread, one loaf of bread, cost close to 30% of a weekly income. And to make it worse, it was only the poor citizens that were forced to produce wheat to the government every month. Rich landowners faced absolutely no legal action if they didn't come up with their required portion of wheat every month. But if a poor Italian didn't provide the wheat that they required, they would be thrown in jail for tax evasion. Put yourself in this situation where you're not feeding your family. You can't feed your family because things are so tight. You're making no money. There's no weed available. If it is available, it's available at such a crazy high market rate that you're never going to be able to afford it. And now you have to grow wheat to hand over to the government. You have food in your hands. Your family is starving and you're handing it to the government. What do you expect to happen? Like, come on. Of course a black market emerged. Of course. Honestly, in situations that are as dire as these, there's almost no other options. I talked a lot in the Frank Costello video about the Italian diaspora, which was a large-scale emigration of Italians from Italy to the USA and to Canada. The first diaspora ran from 1880 to 1920, and in that time period, around 3 million Italians emigrated. And most of those guys were Sicilians. The wheat shortage, plus the ramifications of the Risorgimento, rebellions, revolutions, earthquakes, soil erosion, there was just thing upon thing upon thing, and then on top of that, every single one of these citizens are living in desperate, abject, crippling poverty. And it leaves no other choice but for them to leave. They leave behind everything. They leave behind everything they've ever known. Their family, their friends, and they just go somewhere else. They go through all of this to come to America to be faced with the Great Depression. As horrific as the Great Depression sounds, it was a welcome respite for fleeing Italians. The poorest that America could be 
is rich to a fleeing Italian. While less than 500 people died of malnutrition in America per year, the numbers were a lot higher than that in Italy. If you think that was bad, the Soviet Union had lost 7 to 9 million people from famine during World War II. And that's not even like the petty little problems that the Italians and the Americans and the Canadians were facing. The loss of life in those areas was mostly attributed to malnutrition, which is You'll see that manifest in infant mortality, increase in infectious and respiratory diseases. So in other words, if you're not nourished correctly, your body can't fight off infections, your babies don't make it because they weren't grown in your stomach strong enough, and they don't have the nutrition to be able to survive on their own. So that's the ways that you'll see, you know, people dying in America and in Canada and in Italy of malnutrition. That's not what we were seeing in the Soviet Union, though. In the Soviet Union, the deaths were literally of starvation. Four to five million of those deaths were Ukrainian. A huge reason for this is the grain shortage. It's absolutely wild to think about because as Americans, we're always taught that during the Great Depression, we suffered the worst. Our people suffered the worst. Our economy was hit the hardest, but it's just not true. We were legit not a drop in the bucket when you read these stories. And you know what? I hate to say it, but I feel like it's a real testament to your surviving bloodline that people even survive these times at all. It is wild to think about the fact that just because you're alive today, that means that your ancestors lived through these absolutely insane times and they lived long enough to have you. It's a gigantic accomplishment at its in its own right. It's crazy to think about. Seven to nine million people. Do you know how many people that is? There's a million people in New York City. And if you go to New York City, I work in New York City, and there's just a person every step. There's so many people. Now take that and multiply it by nine, and that is how many people died of starvation in the Soviet Union. That is absolutely wild. When I was a kid, every year, we used to have a Holocaust survivor come to our school and tell us their story. We would see the tattoos on their arms that served as their names during the Holocaust. We would hear the heart-wrenching stories that they were being torn from loved ones. They were put in these concentration camps. It was horrible to think about, horrible to see. But I feel like it was a really good thing because... It taught people that even though a lot of us were going through the worst of the worst as far as we thought, you know, poverty and homelessness, etc. There's a lot of kids that were going through that. Plus, we were living in a time that 9-11 had happened, so things were pretty crazy when we were a kid. But to meet a Holocaust survivor that had gone through that, it taught us to appreciate even what little we did have. It, we didn't have it as bad as other people. And I feel like that's the same kind of notion here, is that like, look, seven to nine million people died of starvation in the Soviet Union. Do you really think that what you're going through right now is, is that bad? That's not to discount what you're going through, because a lot of people are going through some serious shit. But at the end of the day, you could be going through the worst of the worst, and you're not starving to death on a street somewhere in the middle of a city. And people are just passing you because it's a normal thing, because 7 to 9 million people died of it. It's crazy. Alright, 
enough with the introspective mushy shit. Let's get back on with Nicolo. So there's a reason that people go into a life of crime. Nicolo goes into the life of crime. He follows generation upon generation of people into a criminal life. And then he gets married. And he gets told that he's married into the mafia. Yeah, sure. His wife does have a stronger history. Her father is a mafia boss, but what the fuck is Nicolo's uncle? His uncle is also a mafia boss. I feel like Nicolo is getting the girl's end of the stick when you start talking about, like, military. If you're a girl and you're in the military and you say, like, you ask for a military discount or you say something along the lines of, oh yeah, I was in the military... The first thing that that person is going to do is they're going to look at you and then they're going to look to the side of you at the man standing next to you. And I've literally told people like, yeah, I was in the military. And they look to the side of me and say to the man standing next to me, oh, thank you so much for your service. Like, what the, what, what, what do I look like? There was literally a store, like a Fabletics type of store that didn't accept discounts for females to give their military ID. They would have to find a male coworker in the military with them to buy this stuff so that they could get a discount. And that stuff is so regular. I can't even count the number of times that my service was just overlooked and completely dismissed because people would just be like, oh yeah, you were in the military. Like, thanks, guy. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So I feel like in this situation, Nicolo is getting that end of the stick. Like, yeah, his wife has a father that's, you know, a big mafia boss, but at the same time, he has his own family history. So to be told that he's married into the mafia is just insulting. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's been in that life forever, and he did not marry into this. He didn't get where he was because his wife had a dad. No, absolutely not. He had his own history. He didn't marry into the mafia. But right now, to this day, if you go looking anywhere and you read anything about him, that's what you're going to read, that he married into the mafia. And I think that's bullshit. So the same year that he got arrested for peddling illegal wheat, he got married to Libertina Mano. Now... Here's a few things that you need to know about the circumstances around this wedding. Number one, this is a very, very small town that these guys are from. Like, I'm talking small, small. It's not a tourist destination, and even if it was, I'm willing to bet my last dollar that there really isn't any tourists at all during World War II. So even if there is tourists, it's very minimal at best. And the town is not somewhere that a tourist would go, even if there was tourists. On top of the extremely limited number of people that anybody in this town has access to, Sicilians tend to have a habit of not trusting people that they don't know. I spoke a lot on this channel about the wars that have broken out between Italians in America, and that was just because they were from different parts of Italy. These guys will literally go to war with each other because they don't trust each other because one is from Sicily and the other is from northern Italy. You look at the Castella Marisi war that was fought between the Mustache Peets and the Young Turks because the Young Turks wanted to be able to work with somebody from a background that wasn't Italian. But the Mustache Peets believed that it was wrong to so much as say hello to anybody that wasn't not only Italian but from the same part of Italy as they were. So you've got an extremely, extremely isolated group of human beings here. Number two, the ruling clan in the town that Nicolo lives in at the time was Familia Mano. 
The head of Familia Mano was Don Antonio. Don Antonio was Libertina's father. So Don Antonio is running the town that Nicola was living in. Her uncles, Pascal Mano and Leonardo Camilleri, would later be convicted of murder during the time that they were rounding up the mafiosi in Sicily by that prefect. I talked a lot about Mussolini sending the prefect to Sicily to round up all the mafiosi that were like known to be leading the towns. They were convicted during this. And the way that the prefect was able to get their hands on these mafiosi is that they would go and they would kidnap the wives and children, any female in their life, and just beat, rape, torture. They would torture these families until these mafiosi came out and went to jail and then they would get convicted of crimes that they didn't even do in a lot of instances. So in other words, Libertina's family straight up runs this town. They run this town's mafia. Now, Nicolo's uncle is deeply, deeply entrenched in the mafia. So what is the only thing that makes sense here? There's some type of familial link here. Number three, it is very, very common for cousins to marry in this town due to segregation from the rest of the world that I was just discussing. So obviously, from that buildup that I just gave you, I think you can guess what I'm about to say, but Libertina Mano and Nicolo Rizzuto are distant cousins. I've been calling Rizzuto Nicolo, and even though I usually don't do that, usually when I'm doing these videos, I refer to these guys by their last names, but there's an entire family of Rizzuto's that I'm going to be discussing here, so I don't want there to be confusion, so that's why I keep calling him by his first name. So Rizzuto and Nicolo are the same person, but I'm trying to refer to all of these guys by their first names because they all have the same last name, and that will get confusing really quick. So a quick recap of Nicolo Rizzuto and Libertina Mano. They are distant cousins. They get married. Nicolo has a family history in the Mafia. But Libertina's family history is a lot stronger, and her family runs the Familia Mano, the ruling mafia clan of Catalica Ercole, the area that the couple are both from and live together in. Now, the mafia in Italy is a whole different thing than it is here in the States. In Italy, especially during this time, the mafia is like a government. Yes, the mafia is running schemes and doing crime, and they're doing all that, but they're also the ruling body for both criminal and citizen in this town. Like, everybody, criminals, citizens, mafiosi, the baker down the street. If they have a problem, they don't call the police. There is no police. They call the mafia. And the mafia is out there. They're settling problems. If there's a dispute, they hold court. So... When you think of the mafia, don't think of like these, you know, thugs in Manhattan that we have now. Think of a government body. So when I'm talking about these guys right now, think of, let's say, you know, Congress, because that's the way that these guys are operating. They take care of everybody. They hold legit jobs and they help their neighbors. Nicolo, or Zio Cola, as he came to be known. Zio means uncle in Italian, so that means Uncle Nick. He gained a reputation for being very generous and taking care of people in his town. 
Guys, I have all sorts of like ADD, ADHD, you know, issues. So I apologize if you see me keeping on like moving around and my angles are always like messy. I cannot sit in one place. I really, really can't. I don't know if you can tell by my energy, but I have a little bit of a hyperactive problem. Okay. So sorry if, if it's like off putting to see me, you know, over here and then over here and then I'm this way and this way. I apologize for it. So just know that, you know, I have I have issues sitting in one place is my my literal nightmare. So I just you know you'll see my angles change here and there. So I apologize if that's you know confusing for you or you know you're just like what sit in one friggin' space. I I get it. I've been told that my whole life, so I apologize. I really do. On February twenty first, nineteen forty six, Libertina had their first son, Victor Vito Rizzuto. This was super common to just take the two names and pass it down through the generations in, like, a circular motion. Vito Rizzuto had a son that he named Niccolo Rizzuto. Niccolo Rizzuto had a son who he named Vito, and Vito would later have a son who he would name Niccolo, and it goes on and on and on. And what that does is make it 100% impossible to research any of these guys. It's very hard, because when I Google Niccolo Rizzuto... Yes, this guy, Nicola Rizzuto, is coming up, but so is his grandson. And on top of that, they're all in the mafia. So it's not like you can just Google, like, Nicola Rizzuto mafia, because you're going to get three different dudes that are popping up. Really, the only way to figure out who you're reading information on is to read through the crimes and know which Nicolo did which crimes when he lived, when he died. And then you're like, okay, that's the person that I'm reading about right now. A year later, Libertina gave birth to Maria, Vito's little sister. In 1952, the family's flour mill was closed down. This was a serious, serious blow to the entire family. They really had no way at this point to legitimately earn money. Niccolo decided that the only thing that he could do was what his father had done before him, and millions and millions of other Italians had chosen to do at the time, and he headed for the United States. Like many other Italians, especially ones with a criminal history like Niccolo has, he didn't bother to get any paperwork or go through immigration or anything, no. Like, that's just not his style. He's just gonna go. So he gets on a boat and just goes to America. He doesn't bother stopping to ask permission. He just does what he wants. He did the same thing that his father had done, and he headed there alone, leaving his family behind in Sicily, and he had a plan to send for them when he got everything settled. And that's something that Italians do pretty typically. We hear a lot about the man going ahead to the United States, getting a life set up, getting everything settled, getting an apartment, and then sending for the wife and kids, because they don't want to have their wife and kids sleeping on some dude's couch before they find an apartment. That is not something at the time, that's thought of as something that a wife should endure. The man can handle the brunt of the difficulty, and once he has everything settled and calm, then he sends for the wife and kids, and then they can come and everything is already set up and easy, and they don't have to be crashing on people's couches or any of that bullshit. So when Nicolo gets to the United States, he seeks out Nicolo Badafuco, a Bonanno family associate who took Rizzuto under his wing. Nicolo Badafuco, a Bonanno family associate who took Rizzuto under his wing, 
wrestling and he pretty much was like all right bad guy like you know you just got here from italy you don't know the place you don't know anyone here i'll take you around i'll introduce you as a friend of ours and you know show you the ropes of america as nicolo was settling down getting comfortable in this new country trying to get everything figured out he got a new apartment he got entrenched in the bonanno family and he's getting used to things, he got a job, everything's going smoothly, and as soon as he starts to get comfortable, the government grabbed him up and deported him back to Palermo as an undesirable alien. Now Nicolo is back in Italy, and even though the flower plant had shut down, that doesn't mean that, you know, he's poor or he can't feed his family. At the end of the day, he's from a very prestigious family, they had been gifted a house, so they didn't have to pay a mortgage, they didn't have to pay rent, anything like that. Libertina's father had just handed them a house when they got married. So overhead cost isn't that, that high, everything is, you know, smooth sailing. They have plenty of money, but I think that Nicolo wanted to gain a little of independence. When he was here, and he's living in this town that is operated by Famiglia Yamano, he's always going to be viewed as the son-in-law to the boss, or the nephew of the, the other boss, you know? He doesn't have his own name, he doesn't really have a chance to build his own reputation and make something of himself, rather than just being a relative or an extension of these other guys. He wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted to make it on his own, and that's respectable. So now he heads out, and he heads this time for Venezuela. And he lived in Venezuela for a while, secretly, so that the government wouldn't grab him and deport him as an undesirable alien. He never got caught by the government in Venezuela, and he just generically went back to Palermo. And when he did that, he grabbed his family, and they legally emigrated to Canada. This is a pretty surprising fact for me, because he was deported from America as an undesirable alien. I had always heard that it was pretty hard to immigrate to Canada. I thought you had to have, like, a certain amount of money in the bank, you had to have a clean background, yada yada. He had been arrested multiple times, he had spent time in jail, he was a known criminal, so I'm really surprised that he was able to legally become a citizen of Canada, really easily, even though all of this criminal background happened, and the only thing that I can pin that on is that he paid somebody off. The family of four arrived in Halifax, Nova Scotia on February 21st, 1954. When they got there, they headed for Montreal, Quebec, and they got settled there and started their new life. The area that they settled down in was an area in Montreal that most people who had emigrated from his province had headed to when they emigrated to Canada. So remember, they don't trust people that aren't from Italy, and not only they have to be from Italy, but they have to be from their region of Italy. So obviously, because they only trust people from their region, they're going to go and they're going to gravitate to where other people from their region had settled because they want to be around people that they trust. They want a sense of community. Being here is like a fresh start for the family. They have a huge amount of really close friends and family around them. Nicolo is quickly up and running with a new crew of his own. They literally just gave him a crew like, oh, hey, long time no see, here you go. And he instantly had like four or five dudes just running his crimes for him. He's only 29 years old. He's fresh-faced, bushy-tailed, ready to go, and ready to do the work to rise through the ranks and make a name for himself in this new country. He and his crew started working under the Catroni family. I spoke about the Catroni family a little bit in my last video that I did with Galante, which is kind of what made my ears perk up about the Montreal Mafia in the first place. 
The Catroni family is a Montreal, Quebec-based family, and they were created by Vincenzo Catroni in the 1940s. They were officially created in the 1940s. This crew had already existed. They were just more legitimized in the 40s. So they had been operating under this little gang for a while. They were viewed by the United States as an extension of the Bonanno family, and that's because of their really close ties to a lot of people that are in the Bonannos. The main person that they had in common with the Bonanno family was Carmine Galante. The Bonanno family sent Carmine Galante up to Montreal, and they set up Montreal as a stop along the route in the French Connection, a system that was created to move heroin between Sicily, France, Canada, and the United States. Even though they're viewed by the U.S. as an extension of the Bonanno family, that's not really what they are. They worked closely with the Bonannos, and sometimes the Bonannos would send some of their members to the country to do some work for them and do their bidding, you know, like if they needed anything done in Canada, that's who they would hit up. But the Mafia in Canada is way closer in ties and relationships with the clans in Italy than they are with the families in New York. At least at this time they were, given that most everybody in the newly formed Montreal Mafia had immigrated from Italy. So, obviously, that means that they had belonged to the Mafia in Italy, came to Canada, so their ties are way closer with the Italian clans. Niccolo remained extremely close with the Contrera-Caruna clan in Italy, but he also had a really strong connection to the Mafia in Venezuela and in the United States as well, so the family as a whole had a lot of really strong bonds with the Italian clan, and so does Niccolo. But he himself has set up and maintained a relationship with the clans in the U.S., which are the families, and in Venezuela as well. Libertino's father, Don Antonio, the boss of the family, is back in Italy, and he decided to cross over and move to Montreal in 1964. Which is super surprising. You don't really hear about Mafia bosses emigrating very often. I'm guessing it's as a consequence of what was going on with the prefect. Uh, they started going after all the Mafia bosses, and I think he probably just decided, okay, we need to get out of here, you know, seed the land. It's not worth me losing my family over. The area that they had settled in Montreal was pretty popular for Sicilians. Calabrians and immigrants from the south of Italy's boot had headed to Ontario. So different places in Canada were places that different people from different regions had headed to. Niccolo and his brother-in-law, Domenico Mano, had opened a company that they called Grand Royal Paving together. On the outside, Niccolo appeared to be an upstanding member of society. Like, this dude's great if you don't know. He belonged to the Sicilian Association of Montreal, he had his kids enrolled at prestigious schools, and he operated legitimate businesses, so if you don't know about his mafia ties, he looks like a grand old guy, like he's a good dude. In reality, though, he was becoming one of the most powerful mafiosi in the area. His son Vito had followed in his footsteps, of course and dropped out of high school in ninth grade and joined his father's crew. In August of 1965, Vito was cited $25,000 with an eight-day prison sentence for disturbing the peace, which is pretty wild. I really wonder what the hell he did. I couldn't find any information on it, but disturbing the peace, that's usually a ticket. He did eight days in prison. Like, that's a big, harsh punishment 
for somebody that, you know, disturbed the peace. He must have done some shit. Like, he didn't catch a vandalism charge, so he couldn't have done something that bad. But whatever he did really pissed someone off. At 20 years old, Vito married his first cousin once removed. He followed in his father's footsteps again. And he married Giovanna Camilleri, who had come from the same area in Italy that he did, and had extensive family history in the Mafia as well. Vito and Giovanna had their first son on December 4th, 1967, and following with the traditions that dated back generations, they named their first son Nicolo. Their daughter was born on February 22nd. They have a lot of February and December births. This is the second or third time I've mentioned a February birth. So their daughter was born on February 22nd, 1973, and she was named Libertina after Vito's mother. They also had a third son, who they named Leonardo, and he was born on June 8th, 1969, and that name was, like, original. Who knows where that name came from, but that's awesome. Vito was charged with arson after he and his brother-in-law, Paolo Renda, lit Renda's barbershop on fire to collect insurance money from the failing business. They weren't great in their execution, and they lit the accelerant too soon while they were still in the building, and it lit both men on fire, and both of them got pretty extensive burns, and they ended up in the hospital, which is how they got caught for arson, because you don't get caught for arson. That never happens. Unless something like this happens where you light yourself on fire and you end up in the hospital, you don't get caught for that shit. You can't prove it's arson, and even if you can prove it's arson, you can't prove it was the person who did it without a confession, you know? Unless you catch them on camera or something, which does not exist at this time, without ending up in the hospital with severe burns, you're not getting caught. Nicola started to gain a huge foothold in the Montreal construction industry. He was the main figurehead in the industry, and he pretty much called all the shots behind the scenes. So if anybody wanted to do any kind of construction work, they had to go through Nicolo. If anybody owned a construction company and wanted to get work, they had to go through Nicolo. He went to Venezuela and bought a ranch after being sent there by the Sicilian clans, and he was told to set up outposts there to aid in the deal-making process of moving cocaine with the Colombian cartels, because they had a nice little cushy situation going on with the cartels, so they were pretty much like, go to Venezuela, get this all set up, and he needed a place to stay while he was there, so he bought a ranch. It's around this time that Carmine Galante visited Montreal and created a decena, or outfit, of the Bonanno family, and he put Luigi Greco in the rank of lieutenant, and he put Vic Catroni in place as the boss of the outfit, which is how it came to be known as the Catroni family. Bonanno had sent Galante to Montreal to put family structure in place and ensure appropriate kickbacks were being sent to New York. So Venezuela is doing a decent amount of business, but they're not kicking back the right amount to New York. So they pretty much sent Nicolo and said, hey, you have ties in Venezuela. Go there, set this outpost up, and make sure they know what they owe us. Before long, Galante had been deported back to America as an undesirable alien, and a few other New York bosses headed to Montreal and tried to do the same thing and met the same fate very quickly. They all immediately got deported as undesirable aliens. So when they kept getting deported and they couldn't get anybody to be able to stay, they turned to the Montreal residents to run things on their behalf. 
that is how Vincenzo the Egg Catroni and Luigi Greco ended up running this new decenna. Greco actually served as Vic's number two until he died of a fire in 1972. While we've gone through the Castellamorisi War and the Mafia Camorra War in the United States on this channel, probably to exhaustion, we haven't really talked about any wars between Italians in different countries. In the 70s, Niccolo was an associate of the Catroni family, but he was actually in the faction of Sicilian mafiosi who had Luigi Greco as the boss of this little gang. Greco was the Bonanno de Cena's second in command, and that's what tied Niccolo to the Bonanno family in the first place. Tension started to grow in a power struggle between the Calabrian and Sicilian factions of the family, and a mob war broke out in 1973 because they were trying to fill the power vacuum that had opened up when Greco died in 1972. The tension started with a double homicide. 21-year-old Salvatore Sergei and 27-year-old Mario Cambroni, two drug-dealing soldiers of the Catroni outfit, were killed on July 10th, 1973 in St. Laurent. Catroni and Paolo Violi, the man who had stepped up in place of Greco after his death, were out for blood. The Catroni organization retaliated by sending Moreno Gallo and Tony Vanelli to kill Angelo Facino, who was shot in his car five times on September 2nd, 1973. This murder was witnessed by two military policemen. The military cops were chasing them down when they were pulled over by Montreal police for driving on the wrong side of the road on a one-way street. Which is wild. Can you imagine being a military police officer, chasing someone down and then getting pulled over by the Montreal police? So even though this did set them back in their chase a little bit, the Montreal police got involved in this chase and they took pursuit, and they did end up catching them. Gallo and Vanelli were caught after a lengthy pursuit. After they found the weapon that was used in the murder in the car, because it had just happened, they literally watched it happen, Gallo was sentenced to life, and Vanelli copped to manslaughter, and he got less than a life sentence. I can't even find out what his actual sentence was, but it wasn't a full life sentence. This strike happened in retaliation against the Dubois brothers, a group of nine brothers, whose names were Raymond, Jean Guy, Normand, Claude, René, Roland, Jean Paul, and twins Maurice and Adrian. And these guys led a completely separate criminal organization in Montreal that was almost equal in power to the Catroni organization. Claude Dubois, one of the brothers, was once given an interview in the press where he said that Paolo Violi, Catroni's number two, was a punk. Which is just, in my head, I picture that as like, UFC fighters just trash-talking each other on TV. But this is on, like... TV, like, people are seeing this in their house, and Paolo Violi is out here like, oh yeah, Catroni's number two is a punk. Like, that's wild. You take that public. The brothers collected a large percentage and a pretty decent chunk of all the illegal activity that was going on in Montreal. They were definitely the biggest loan sharks in the West End, and they did not hide the fact that they were raking in the dough. They bought townhouses, they had country houses, expensive cars, they lived this ostentatious lifestyle, just did not care. 
The Quebec Police Department wrote in its 1977 report that some maintain that the ruthless methods of the Dubois, the large number of toughs gravitating around each of the nine brothers, as well as the widely dreaded cruelty of their airlings, make them the most influential criminal group at this present time on the island of Montreal. Which, by the way, I never knew Montreal was an island. That's so cool. I know Manhattan is an island, but I didn't know Montreal is an island, so that's a pretty cool fun thing to find out. The Dubois brothers were their own entity. They were not even remotely related to the Mafia. They have no structure in terms of power. They each owned their own territory and their own crew. So when you think of the Dubois brothers, don't think of, like a mafia family or a ma- they they were just completely separate at the same time that they waged war with the Catroni organization they also went to war with the McSween gang the McSween gang was the Irish mafia in the town at that time and they had been paying the Dubois brothers 10 to 20% of their earnings since the 1950s and they were raking in about fifteen to $18,000 a week. The war between the McSween gang and the Dubois brothers saw losses in the double digits on both sides. But the Dubois brothers were the victors after a St. Valentine's Day-like massacre happened that killed four men, and only one of the men were related to the crew on the McSween side. Claude Dubois personally went to the leader, Jacques McSween's house and took him out on October 5th, 1974. The men in the Montreal organizations were called a Capo de Chena, rather than like the the families in America are called Capo regimes because they're a family, you know, they're they're an organization, but the Montreal organization was called a Capo de Chena because it was more of an extension of the Bonanno family than a regime itself so they were called they were called capo di chena it's a smaller scale instead of capo regime the fighting continued to royal when nicolo who was supposed to be underneath catroni was making far bigger moves than catroni himself was he claimed that catroni would often be heard complaining that nicolo is going from one side to the other he means from canada to the united states to venezuela just going wherever the hell he wants to here and there, and he says nothing to nobody, he is doing business, and nobody knows anything. That's a serious issue. I've talked about that issue here before on this channel. I can't remember who it was. I went looking. I couldn't find it. It was a dude that kept doing work for another boss and not getting that guy's boss permission to go do work for another boss. I want to say, I really strongly want to say it was Albert Anastasia that was doing work for someone else, but maybe it was Gotti. It was one of the two. It was either Anastasia or Gotti. I'm 99% sure it was Anastasia, and he was out there doing work for another boss and not getting permission from his boss to do work for the other boss, which I'm 99% sure I'm talking about Murder, Inc., but don't quote me on that. So this war is going on and things are not looking up for Nicolo. Catroni is in the Mafia Commission and he is a sanctioned leader of the organization. He's got New York behind him and technically he has the right to get rid of him. When Nicolo and Violi met up for peace talks in 1977, Things did not go well, and Nicolo decided to take his family and flee to Venezuela. Between the war with the Rizzutos and the McSween gang, there is a huge number of losses that the Catroni family is feeling right now. Violi reached out to the New York bosses, and he requested permission to take out Nicolo. But the request was denied, and he was forbidden from killing Nicolo. On St. Valentine's Day in 1976, 
Pietro Shasha Violis Consiglieri was killed and his body was left in the middle of the street, which was just a huge fuck you to his gang. A year later, Francesco Violi, Paolo Violi's younger brother, was also killed. Violi was locked up briefly in relation to a CECO inquiry, and after he got out, he sold the bar that he owned to the Randisi brothers, Vincenzo and Giuseppe Randisi. So now a year goes by, and, you know, tensions kind of start to calm down, and Vincenzo Randisi invited Violi to come over to the bar and, you know, have a, ni- a relaxing night, like play cards and everything was going to be cool, you know, just come chill for the night. Violi decided to go, and while they were playing cards, Violi was killed. Domenico Mano, Nicola Rizzuto's brother-in-law, was believed to play a major role in Violi's hit, and he was working on orders from Nicolo. Mano pled guilty to conspiring to kill Violi and got a seven-year prison sentence. Agostino Contrera, Rizzuto's confidant, got a five-year sentence in relation to the hit, so it's pretty safe to say that it was Nicolo that ordered this hit. Not the McSween gang, not anyone else, it was Nicolo. Nicolo was able to escape any blame being placed his way because he was in Venezuela when it happened, and he was like, I wasn't even here. I fled years ago. Don't, don't blame me for this shit. I'm not there. So it was, it was almost impossible to pin it on him. But it's not a coincidence that everybody around him is getting arrested for this murder. On October 17, 1980, the war ended when Rocco Violi, the last surviving Violi brother, was killed at his kitchen table when a sniper rifle came in through the window. It's clearly a tactic that they use, you know, sniper rifles from long-range distances. Caccioni died of cancer on September 16, 1984, and by the mid-80s, the Rizzuto family emerged as Montreal's preeminent crime family after the turf war. So this war goes on, Nicolo takes his family, they flee to Venezuela, but now the leaders, Violi and Caccioni, they had both died, and now he returns and he comes out as the preeminent crime family. So now it's the late 1980s. The Rizzuto family is running the family in Montreal and life is going great. They had previously been pretty much exiled to Venezuela and now Catroni and Violi and all the other big dogs around them are dead and they have nothing to fear. They're back in Montreal and they are living the good life. Nicolo got a house on a street where his son Vito had also bought a house a few days down. And when they bought these two houses, other mafia members started to build houses on that same street. Police started to call this street Mafia Row. The short street was on the edge of a nature preserve, so it's pretty secluded. It's set off in the distance, and obviously cops are getting called out there all the time. You know, they're going to investigate some crime. They have to go to some mafiosi's house, and they say, oh, I'm just going to head to Mafia Row. So it was it was a well-known thing that all of these guys were in the Mafia. Joe Messino was running the Bonanno family back in New York, and the Rizzuto family was well-known to him. And the whole Bonanno family was well known as very good earners, and they made tens of millions of dollars a year, facilitating in nearly all imports that came into the United States of heroin. Messino extended an olive branch to Vito Rizzuto to invite him to a wedding that Messino was hosting. He called this wedding the social event of the year, and he pretty much invited him to try to strengthen the relationship between the Bonanos and the Rizzutos. The Rizzutos 
really wanted to show that they were loyal and that they could be trusted as an integral part of the Bonanno family. They were willing to do absolutely anything it took to prove that. It did not take long before they got the chance to prove their worth. Messino called on Vito and his crew to come take care of some of his captains that he didn't think was loyal anymore. So pretty much what he did was he hit up Vito and he was like, Hey, I got a problem with these guys. I don't trust them anymore. But I can't kill them, and I can't have it come back to me as having hurt people in my own family, so I need you to come here and come take care of it. Vito came to New York with Garifundo Shasha and Giovanni Ligamari. Vito viewed the request to take care of these captains from Messino as an absolute honor. He was being trusted to carry out a contract by the boss of the Bonanno family, and this meant so much to him. It was like his life work had all been worth it for this request to kill for the Bonanno boss. And he knew that him committing this crime was going to immeasurably strengthen the relationship between the Bonannos and the Rizzutos. So obviously, Vito takes care of business, and he takes care of the three captains in question, Philip Giacconi, Dominic Trinchera, and Alphonse Indelicato, on May 5th, 1981. And these guys are just called to a meeting. They believe that they're going to a meeting with Rizzuto, who is a member of a friendly faction of the Bananos. They have no idea that there's any any threat whatsoever. They don't know that people are coming after them. They just know like, oh, hey, the Rizzutos want to chill and they go and they all get murked. Their bodies were cut up and disposed of Roy DeMeo style, just like in dumpsters all over New York. None of the body pieces were ever found. The slaughter came to be known as a later day version of Al Capone's St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So when I said a St. Valentine's Day-like massacre, this is what I'm talking about, is these three Bonanno captains that the, the boss of the Bonanno family decided that he didn't trust anymore. Now, if you speak to people in Canada, they will tell you that the Rizzuto family was more powerful and had a higher earning than any New York Mafia family. When compared to John Gotti, Leela Moss, a really, I hate to say it, but a really stupid Canadian author, says Vito Rizzuto's criminal footprint was far greater than Gotti's. John Gotti was a powerful, thuggish criminal in a borough of New York with influence in other boroughs. Vito Rizzuto could get on an airplane and fly to the Emirates and be recognized and be accepted. As Canadians, we think... Oh, the Americans got the best of everything, you know? They've got the best pizza, they've got the best Italian criminals, but you know what? We got the best Italian criminals. I'm just gonna be straight up here. This girl's a friggin' idiot. She's dumb. To say that Rizzuto had a bigger impact and more power than John Gotti is just absolutely asinine. To say that Gotti couldn't go anywhere in the world during the time of him leading the Gambino family and not be recognized is just lunacy. It's absolutely crazy. And not only would he be recognized, he would be recognized as the leader of the American Mafia. And this author is just acting like, oh, Rizzuto would be recognized and, you know, respected, and Gotti wouldn't, and that's just plain stupid. I don't know if you were alive during the time, but people literally threw block parties when Gotti got found not guilty of crimes. I promise you, I promise you, Gotti was way more recognizable in the crime syndicates of the entire earth than Rizzuto was. I like Rizzuto. He seems like a cool guy. 
But this is just like Canada trying to cap to get more power and, you know, make it seem like their their people are more badass, but they're not. I promise you they're not. In America, the Bonanno family got hit pretty hard with an undercover scheme that the FBI worked up. The FBI were able to place an undercover agent, Joe Pistone, into the mafia to infiltrate the Bonanno family. His undercover identity, Donnie Brasco, was so successful that he ended up being able to testify at over a hundred trials, putting away a hundred mafia members. There was a movie made about this whole situation called Donnie Brasco, and, like, Johnny Depp is the lead actor, and Al Pacino is his mentor, and it's actually a really good movie. It's an old movie, so if you're not into, like, you know, 80s, 90s movies, you probably wouldn't like it, but if you are into those kind of movies, go check out Donnie Brasco, because it was a really good movie. He even went on to help convict Joe Messino, who is the boss of the Bonanno family, of murder. Messina would become the first ever boss of one of the five families of New York to turn cooperating witness after a death sentence and a $10 million loss in civil court. The murder that they caught Messina on was the St. Valentine's Day-like massacre, and in 2006, Rizzuto had been extradited to the United States, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his role in the triple homicide in 1988. After Vito Rizzuto went to prison, police were able to tap the family's clubhouse, Cafe Costanza, and listen in on every single facet of every single conversation that the organization had. Nicolo Rizzuto acted as the boss, and he would just pretty much settle conflicts, he would arrange the crimes that were going to happen, he would get paid his share of the criminal earnings, they called it like a tribute, and it's just, they're watching him be a mafia boss in Canada. And they even watched him put aside a pretty substantial amount of earnings to give to his son when he got out of jail. The wiretap was able to expose Rizzuto's agreement with the Trudeau airport staff, which was how they were able to smuggle in so much Colombian cocaine without getting caught was because they had agreements with the Trudeau airport staff. They videotaped customs agents and employees at pretty much every level in this airport cooperating with the family. So, like, there was not anybody working in this entire airport that wasn't on board with this family. Even though he was no longer, you know, exiled to Venezuela, Rizzuto did spend a significant amount of his time there still. On August 2nd, 1988, he was arrested when a raid on his home in Venezuela found 700 grams of cocaine at his house. That is a lot of grams of cocaine. How do you even have 700 grams of cocaine sitting at your house? Like, I get it, you're a drug dealer, but at your house? Your personal house? Like, you live there, bro. Chill. Like, he was sentenced to eight years in prison, but five years later, he was paroled after he gave an $800,000 bribe to the Venezuelan officials. He was back in Montreal on May 23rd, 1993. In Montreal, after years and years of this clubhouse being wired and nobody having any idea, Nicolo was finally arrested on November 22nd, 2006, after a four-year investigation that they dubbed Project Khaleesi. He was arrested along with 91 other criminals in Canada. The dumb author that I quoted before said, This has never been done before in North America. This is the removal, laterally, of not only an entire generation of organized criminals, because there's other mafias at work in this. It also took out the infrastructure. It took out the leadership. Clearly, this author has never read about the Mafia Commission trials. 
Never been done before? Are you freaking kidding me? Have you never heard of the Mafia Commission Trials, bro? Come on. Come on. The Mafia Commission Trials took out every boss of every one of the five families. Well, the only person that they didn't take out was Vincent the Chin Gigante, because Gigante was still convincing them that he was, like, you know, mentally incapacitated. They had no idea yet, until Sammy the Bull got busted and he blew the lid open. But yeah, the Mafia Commission Trials took out leadership of every one of the five families in New York. So, to say that in 2006... This was done for the first time ever in North America makes my brain hurt. It makes my brain hurt. Unless I'm stupid. Is America not in North America? I think it's in... America's definitely in North America. I know that. This author is just very, very, very uninformed and not great. <laughs> Rizzuto pled guilty to possession of proceeds of a crime for the benefit of, the direction of, or in association with a criminal organization, and he was given a four-year prison sentence in Montreal. He was released from prison on October 16th, 2008, after only two years because the prosecutors failed to provide enough evidence that Rizzuto was directly involved with the crime itself, which is bonkers to me because they have four years, four years of secret wiretaps in his clubhouse and they still can't come up with enough evidence. And I love that. Okay. I love that for him. On February 11th, 2010, the Canada Revenue Agency, which is pretty much like Canada's IRS, came after him and he ended up pleading guilty to two counts of tax evasion, which is how they always get the people that they can't get on their criminal activities. They come after them for tax evasion. This plea was related to the years 1994 and 1995, so he's getting charged in 2010 for crimes he committed in 94 and 95. And if there's no statute of limitations on tax evasion, it makes me insane. These people just do whatever the hell they want. Like, there's no statute of limitations. There's statute of limitations on the R word. And you're telling me that there's none on tax evasion? You can come after someone 15 years later? In 1994 and 1995, he was accused of hiding $5.2 million that he deposited into a Swiss bank account, and he failed to report $728,000 in interest income. Over that whole trial, he ended up having to pay a $209,000 fine. When Nicolo, who was the boss of the family at the time, was locked up, and Vito Rizzuto was still in prison in the U.S., Vito's son, Nicolo Rizzuto Jr., steps in, and he's acting as the boss of the family. So this is what I'm talking about when I say, like, I went to research Nicolo Rizzuto, and that is impossible because stuff about Vito's son is coming up, and, and each of them are involved in the mafia, and, and you pretty much have to read through and sort through who is who based on the crimes that they committed. It's insane. It's really hard to research these guys. When Nicolo Sr. came out of jail, he didn't take control of the family back over. He let his grandson continue running the show. He was just kind of proud. He's like, yeah, that's my grandson. Yeah, run shit, boy. Like, he was, he was, he was hyping him. I honestly think he didn't want to be the boss anymore. And you talk to anybody in the mafia, and most of them are going to tell you that they don't want the headache. Being the boss is pretty much just putting yourself in the line of fire. You're going to go to jail. Everybody's going to try to kill you. It's not a good look. It's not a fun time. So it doesn't really surprise me so much that he doesn't want to take that responsibility back, especially in his mid-80s, which is how old he is at this point. 
Unfortunately, the acting boss of the family, Nicolo Jr., who's Vito's son and Nicolo's grandson, was shot to death outside of a building in December of 2009. When that happened, Nicolo Sr. stepped up and took control of the family again because Vito is in jail in America, and his grandson, who was running the show, just died. There really is no other option. He has to step up. The same clans that the family was at war with in the 70s come back at this time, and they come back with a vengeance. The underboss of the family was killed. People who did business with the family had their businesses blown up, and, you know, Molotov cocktail attacks were happening all over the place. Nicolo Jr. ended up getting killed. And back in Italy, the government seized $400 million in cash and properties from the Rizzutos, and issued an extradition order for Vito Rizzuto. So they were not playing. At 86 years old, as Rizzuto sat in his home in Montreal, he was shot by a sniper who shot through the double-paned glass in the patio doors in the back of his house. He was killed instantly in this attack on November 10th, 2010. His funeral was held at the Church of the Madonna della Defisa in Little Italy, Montreal on November 15th, and 800 people showed up to this funeral. He was buried at St. Francis d'Assise Cemetery in St. Leonard, Quebec. Nobody ever got arrested for the crime, but police said that they believed it was Salvatore Caluti who was behind the sniper rifle, and they did extensive investigation to kind of figure out what was going on on the streets and what they have to be watching out for. And Kaludi was killed on July 12th, 2013. I don't want to go into too much about his son because I do plan on making an episode devoted solely to Vito Rizzuto in a few months, but I will say this. He followed his father into the mafia and another war broke out in yet another quest to take control of the Montreal family. Vito's son, Nicolo Rizzuto Jr., was shot and killed on December 28th, 2009, and he was seeing red. Paolo Renda, Nicolo's son-in-law, disappeared on May 20th, 2010, and he was presumed kidnapped and killed. The power struggle was what was responsible for the assassination of his father, Nicolo Rizzuto Sr. On December 23rd, 2013, Vito succumbed to lung cancer in an area hospital and he died as well. There was speculation that he could have been poisoned, which led to his death, but an autopsy was never performed, and I think that's just one of those things that, like, he lived this crazy life, and poison is what took him down. You know, I, I don't think that there's much merit to that. If they thought that he was poisoned, I think that they would have done an autopsy. I think that they were pretty sure he just died of lung cancer. During his reign as boss of the family, he came to be known as the Canadian John Gotti. He was flashy, he gave interviews to the media, and he also had the same nickname that Gotti had, the Teflon Don, after he had gotten off on multiple charges. When Vito got out of jail, he came out swinging. This man was pissed. His son had been killed, his father had been killed, his uncle had been killed, and literally he's just watching, while he's in prison, he's watching everybody that he loves die. He came out, he bought an armored car, and he moved into a well-guarded apartment. In retribution for the murders of Vito's son, father, brother-in-law, and consigliere, Paolo Renda, and two associates, 
Federico del Pacino and Agostino Contrera, drug dealers Emilio Cordiglione, Tony Gensel, and Mohamed Awada were eliminated in back-to-back killings in November of 2012. And that is all for their involvement in Renda's assassination. Also in November of 2012, Joe DiMaolo, an influential mobster and ally to the Catroni family, was executed in his driveway of his home in North Montreal. Three days before Christmas in 2012, a gunman came into the coffee shop of Giuseppe DeVito, one of Rizzuto's rivals. The gunman ended up killing one man, Dominic Ficini, and critically wounded another. A lot more killings happen in this, but as I said, I do plan on doing an episode on Vito. So at the end of the day, this whole thing comes to a pretty tragic end when Vito's in jail and watches Nicolo, his father, Nicolo, his son, his consigliere, and pretty much everybody that he had as confidants be killed. And what goes on next is pretty crazy, so definitely keep an eye out for the Vito Rizzuto episode, because that's going to be a wild one. That's all I have on this powerhouse mafioso Nicolo Rizzuto. Thanks so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed hanging out with me today, and I hope you come back next week. If you have any suggestions on who you would like to see me cover next, go ahead and drop them in the comments. I do listen, because, I mean, this this episode was suggested by somebody. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!